Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 29 today. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. And the title of today's sermon is Depravity's Reach. What if prior to Billy Graham's death, you opened the newspaper to read that he was found drunk and naked in a lakeside cabin? How would that make you feel? What kinds of thoughts and emotions would be spurred in you? Or what if today, all of the online news publications shared breaking news that John Piper was found absolutely hammered, blackout drunk, and was arrested for public nudity. Insert one of the most holy people that you can think of. Place them in that breaking news story. Intoxicated and exposed. Would you be surprised? Shocked? Horrified? Angry? Let down, I'd probably be a little bit of all of those things. But what we're going to see in today's text is a hundred times worse than Billy Graham, John Piper, or any other modern-day example of holiness. We'll be dealing with Noah. So let's dive into the text. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and He died. Our three headings for today's sermon are these. Point one, Noah's fall in verses 18 through 21. Point two, the sin of Ham in verses 22 through 23. And then point three, cursing and blessing in verses 24 through 29. So point one, Noah's fall. 
As we dive into these verses, I want us to remember who it is that we're talking about here. All the way back in chapter 5, we were first introduced to Noah. Chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. It says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This was the guy who was going to bring rest. Chapter 6, verse 8. Amidst All the corruption and sin, we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He then obeys God at every turn, does everything God asks him to do. God establishes his covenant with Noah. Noah then exits the ark, immediately builds an altar, and worships God as his first act. He was a man of faith, according to Hebrews 11. This is who we're dealing with here. Now, let me ask you this question. Since God brought righteous judgment on all of the sin of the world and wiped everyone else out, what would you expect a new world to look like with this guy, righteous Noah, and his family populating it? I think of surgically sterile rooms. They go to great lengths to make sure that everything's clean. Everyone washes, everyone puts on sterile clothing and gloves. They make sure that they're not introducing germs into that clean room. That's what I would expect this new world to look like. All the sinners were destroyed, and righteous Noah is left. What would today's world look like? If all of the non-believers were taken off the face of the earth and only Christians were left. Again, I'd like to assume that the crime rate would drop. There'd be harmony and unity everywhere. All of the evil would simply disappear, right? Well, Moses, the author of Genesis, wants to disabuse us of this wrong way of thinking. While the rainbow scene that we've just passed has left us with a portrait of Noah happily remembering God's covenant, maybe you picture him with rays of sunshine all around him, Moses brings us back to reality. Look at our text, verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And from these people, uh, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Moses is telling us two important truths here. Number one, he's saying, key in on this guy Ham, Noah's youngest son. He's the father of Canaan. 
Remember, the original audience for Genesis was the Israelites in the time of the Exodus. They were very familiar with who Canaan was, or the Canaanites. They were notoriously sinful people. In modern times, it'd be like reading a story that said, Ham was the father of Hitler, or something like that. You'd know that this guy's lineage leads to something ominous. So Moses first draws our attention to Ham. Second, he tells us that from these three sons, the whole earth was dispersed or populated. In other words, the stories of these three sons will tell you a lot about history. So pay close attention to their stories here. Now, look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good. Nothing wrong there. In fact, there's a parallel here with what we saw God do in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Moses wants us to make this connection. In creation... God planted a garden. In this new creation, Noah plants a vineyard. The setting is one of new creation. That's what we're meant to see. And then we get verse 21. Here we go. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah the man of righteousness, hammered and naked in his tent. There's several truths here that we need to see and understand. Number one, Noah planting the vineyard and drinking the wine isn't sinful in and of itself. Yes, this is a Baptist church, and yes, you heard me correctly. Happily a Baptist doctrinally. But anywhere that Baptist tradition clashes with biblical truth, I'll take the Bible. I don't believe that the Bible absolutely condemns alcohol consumption. In fact, wine is often seen as a gift from God in Scripture. Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15. It says, you, meaning God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I don't believe Jesus and the disciples were drinking Welch's grape juice at the Last Supper. It was wine, oinos. Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. He turns water into wine, and not just a little bit of it, 180 gallons of water into wine. Good wine. Jesus doesn't seem to be absolutely against alcohol consumption. That being said, the Bible does resolutely condemn drunkenness. Proverbs 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, 
strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the wine isn't the issue here. The drunkenness is black and white. The Bible calls drunkenness unwise, foolish, and sin. Noah is in sin here in Genesis 9. He's drunk. He's lost self-control. And he's lost his dignity. Throughout Scripture... This is an act of great shame. Second, following the theme of new creation, I believe that Moses wants us to see Noah as a second Adam. I'll say that again. I believe Moses wants us to see Noah as a second Adam. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve wrongfully took of fruit and ended up naked and ashamed. In this new world, Noah wrongfully took of the fruit of the vine and ended up naked and ashamed. What are we meant to see here? Truth number three. Even though God righteously judged the world in flooding it, the world isn't sterile. Because Noah is a descendant of Adam, he's a sinful person. He and the rest of his family carried sin in their hearts on the ark. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So Noah was both a notorious saint and a notorious sinner. Moses wants us to see this and to not be surprised by it. Don't forget, the reason Noah was declared righteous previously was because of his faith in God. It was by the grace of God. It's not that that Noah was different than Adam before him, or Moses, or Abraham, David, or Peter after him. Richard Phillips comments that Moses wants us to see that not only can all people fall into sin, but the Bible makes it clear that everyone actually does fall into sin. Even righteous Noah. Moses murders an Egyptian in Exodus 2, disobeys God out of frustration in Numbers 20. David commits adultery with Bathsheba conspires to murder her husband in 2 Samuel 11. Peter says he'll never deny Christ. Does it three times in Matthew 26 alone. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 says this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A couple verses later, a text that we're more familiar with, Romans 3.23. It says, For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point of the Bible isn't to put these men of the faith up on pedestals as sinless. The point of the Bible is to see that there was only one person in history who was sinless. It's not them. It's Jesus. There's only one hero in the Bible. It's not Noah. It's not Moses, David, Peter, or Paul. It's Jesus. While Noah is a second Adam, Jesus is a true and better Adam. When when Jesus is tempted in the garden, he doesn't falter. He's faithful. That's the first truth we're meant to ponder in this text. That sin is still alive and well. Even in those declared righteous by grace through faith. Noah is not the one who will ultimately bring rest. So we should keep looking ahead to Christ. Now, before we move on to our next point, I hope that this is humbling to us this morning. Maybe you haven't fallen like Noah. Maybe getting drunk isn't your temptation. Maybe it's something else. As Christians, we shouldn't pridefully think that we're better than everyone else and that we're perfectly sinless. Yes, Jesus did beat sin for us. And his righteousness is credited to us. We're declared righteous because of Christ. Yet, until we die or Jesus comes back, we'll always struggle with sin. Hear this loud and clear. As Christians, we should be pursuing holiness with everything we've got. This is honoring to God. And it's the best way to live life here on earth, a life of holiness. We should never just throw our hands up and give in to sin. But, but, never become so prideful that you begin to rest on past achievements. When it comes to sin, past victories don't ensure future success. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus challenges us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll only do that with God's help, friends. I need to pray that every day. You need to pray that every day. Noah is a warning to us that everyone is capable of notorious sin. Also on this point, I feel the need to point out that this story in the Bible, this story of Noah getting drunk, it bolsters my trust of the Bible itself. 
If this were merely a human book, there's no way that this story gets put in there. Noah is a godly man. In an earthly sense, he's a hero. Arthur Pink writes this. He says, it is human to err, but it is also human to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. Had the Bible been a human production, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would have been ignored, or if recorded at all, an attempt at extenuation would have been made. Had some human admirer chronicled the history of Noah, his awful fall would have been omitted. The fact that it is recorded and that no effect is made to excuse his sin is evidence that the characters of the Bible are painted in the colors of truth and nature, that such characters were not sketched by human pens, that Moses and the other historians must have written by divine inspiration. This story bolsters my trust of the Bible's truthfulness. Point number one, Noah's fall. Point number two, the sin of Ham. The sin of Ham. So other than Jesus, the spotless and perfect lamb who took away the sins of the world, other than him, there's no perfect people on planet Earth, even righteous Noah. But what happens here in response to Noah's sin? Here, we have a sharp contrast between these brothers, Ham and then Shem and Japheth. Let's start in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, he's reminding us of that again. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This scene has now gone from bad to worse. You might be thinking, what's the big deal? Ham isn't the one in sin here. It's Noah. Ham just just happened to wander up and accidentally saw his dad at his lowest. That's not what the Bible is communicating here. And we'll see that clearly later on in the text with the curse on Ham's lineage. First, the word saw here isn't referencing a casual accidental glance. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament historian and Genesis expert, he describes Ham's sin as homosexual voyeurism. There are those that take it even further than that. I don't believe the text warrants that, but one thing is clear. Ham seems to be taking gross pride in the sin of his father. So much so that he goes outside the tent and publicly shares his dad's shame with his brothers. The original readers of Genesis would have immediately made the connection with the fifth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. Ham was actually dishonoring his father. Further, Robert Candelish writes this. He says, Ham hated his, meaning his father's, religion. 
He not merely dishonored Noah as a parent, he disliked him as a preacher of righteousness. Hence his satisfaction, his irrepressible joy when he caught the patriarch in such a state of degradation. Ham seems to revel in and to take pleasure in his father's sin. It's a gross scene that's painted for us here. Now, let's contrast Ham's response with that of his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Look at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What a different response! A godly response. You can imagine this awkward scene. Twice, this verse mentioned that they, they walked or were turned backward. A garment between their two, the two brothers. You can picture them trying not to trip on anything as they walk backward into the tent until they look down and see Noah's feet. They're in the right place to drop the garment and cover their exposed, ashamed father. I mentioned that This was a godly response. In doing what they did, they were like God. Again, remember the creation garden theme that we talked about earlier. Noah's vineyard is like a new Eden. Noah is like a new Adam who wrongfully took of the fruit and ended up naked and ashamed. What does God then do at the end of Genesis 3? He covers Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, while only God can atone for sin and spiritually clothe us with righteousness, while only God can do that, Shem and Japheth are still doing a godly thing here. This this isn't them atoning for Noah's sin in any way. But it is them honoring their father and covering his sin. Richard Phillips writes, Shem and Japheth provide a lovely example to Christians who encounter the shameful sins of fellow believers. There are sins that are so public in nature that they require a public response from the church in preserving Christ's honor. But especially when we encounter private failings or embarrassing flaws in others' character, we should walk backwards in the footsteps of Noah's godly sons, seeking to avoid noting and especially publicizing causes for shame. I love that. He's not saying that we ever cover up sin. But he's saying what I think Peter is saying in 1 Peter uh, 4, verse 8. Peter writes this. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love does what? Covers a multitude of sins. Do you see that? When your brother or sister in Christ sins... 
What's your first reaction? To go tell other people about it and to publicize it? To take pleasure in it and revel in it? Or to cover it with grace, mercy, patience, and forgiveness? That's what Christians are called to do out of gratitude for the gospel. Our sins, our sins have been covered by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that in our assurance of pardon today? Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, only God can cover sin in an atoning way. But we can respond to the sin of our brothers and sisters in a godly way. We can show respect and honor and thankfulness for our own forgiven sins in the gospel. That's exactly what Shem and Japheth do here. So point one, Noah's fall. Point two, the sin of Ham. And finally, point three, cursing and blessing. Cursing and blessing. With the time we have left, uh, let's take a look at the outcome of all of this. Verses 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, or a slave of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. So Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, realizes all that's happened, and proceeds to pronounce a curse. Again, this is a callback to Genesis 3, where post-sin, God delivers curses and blessings. First and foremost, I want us to understand the main point here before we get lost in some weeds. Sin leads to slavery. Sin leads to slavery. That's the main point of this curse. Sin leads to slavery. Understand this. Sin always tells you that it'll give you freedom. It promises life and fun and freedom from restraint. It promises you an easier road or life or more fulfillment. It always delivers slavery. Promises freedom, delivers slavery. If only we could see it that way. That's what we're meant to see here, even in this curse, that sin leads to slavery. Now, with that being the main point, let's answer an intriguing question. Ham was the one who sinned, right? But Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan. Why? While there's a ton of different theories, I'm going to quickly rifle through a handful of things for us to consider here. Ham sins, Canaan is cursed. Why? Number one, Noah realized that God had previously blessed all three of Noah's sons. 
And he knew that he couldn't curse what God had blessed. Second, Ham sinned as a son. And so Noah cursed Ham through his son. The punishment mirrored the crime. Third, during this time, often sons' behavior mirrored that of their fathers. Gordon Wynnum writes this. He says, The Canaanites are notorious throughout the Old Testament for their aberrant sexual practices. Thus, Noah may have anticipated that Ham's sin would be reproduced in the line of Canaan. Fourth, we have to remember the original audience of Genesis. The Israelites in the Exodus, they were the first ones to read this. They would have known all about Ham's descendants. First, the Egyptians, who had just enslaved the Israelites for hundreds of years. The Egyptians came from Ham. We'll read about that next week in chapter 10. Second, those who were in the promised land that Israel needed to drive out. Who were they? The Canaanites. If you're the Israelites and you're reading this story, you're now bolstered with confidence, knowing that God's about to use you as an instrument of judgment on these wicked people who Noah prophetically cursed. But then comes the question, is every Canaanite cursed? No matter what? It's just faded? No way to change it? No. In the book of Joshua, as God's people are justly taking the land, we see this wonderful story of a woman named Rahab, a Canaanite. She turns to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and she's saved. That's the truth. Anyone can turn to God and be saved. Anyone. Your family lineage or your family religion neither saves you nor damns you. God draws people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what we see at the end of the book in Revelation. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13 says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him, meaning Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. While sin leads to slavery, you can be free through turning, through turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. And what about Shem and Japheth? What about them? Ham is cursed, or, or the descendants of Ham are cursed. What about Shem and Japheth? Look at verses 26 and 27. He, meaning Noah, also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Notice this. Just like Ham didn't directly get the curse, Shem doesn't directly get the blessing. 
Noah blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. It's a doxology. Jim Hamilton insightfully comments, by directing the blessing to Yahweh instead of Shem, the narrator subordinates the human actors to the divine actor. It's Yahweh rather than Shem who is praised. What is most remarkable here is that the use of God's covenant name suggests that Shem was already in covenant relationship with the Lord and that his blessing was found wholly in the Lord. Do you see that? Covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the biggest blessing that anyone could have. All of Shem's blessings will come as a result of that. It's important to note that while the Canaanites come from the lineage of Ham, the Israelites come from the line of Shem. It's a blessing to be part of that line. And finally, what about Japheth? From Japheth's lineage would come the Indo-European peoples of the earth. Gentiles. Most of us in this room. See this. What's Noah's blessing upon Japheth? It says, and let him, meaning Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. What's being said here? Well, through the lens of the New Testament, we know exactly how this this blessing is fulfilled. Read with me in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Here we go, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. In other words, through Christ, all of us Japhethites get to dwell in the tents of Shem. We're we're blessed by the God of Israel because of our faith in Christ. The gospel is good news for all nations. This is why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, these are the last words that Jesus uttered on earth. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. Francis Schaeffer writes this. He says, these verses in Genesis make it plain That through the promise, or though the promise will be fulfilled through the Semitic people, it is actually open to the whole human race. Praise God for that truth. If that wasn't true, all of us in this room would be out in the cold. But instead, we get to dwell in the tents of Shem. And we get to offer refuge to the whole human race in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing, we read verses 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The results of the fall are alive and well. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Noah, as a descendant of Adam, died. But I want us to understand this. Even even though Noah's earthly story ends on kind of a low note, God's grace never leaves him. Through his faith, and because of God's covenant with him, he would not be eternally condemned. If Noah's eternal life depended on his own performance, he's toast. But praise God, salvation isn't because of our performance. It's because of Christ's performance on our behalf. If you've heard nothing else today, focus in here. All of us, all of us, like Noah, will die someday. And all of us, like Noah, will fall into sin while we live here on earth. But the good news of the gospel is this. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. Far from it. But it does mean that you're not condemned. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I implore you this morning, turn to Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in him. His perfect life lived. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the only way out of slavery and into eternal freedom. If you'd like to talk more about what that means to be a Christian, I'd love nothing more than to talk to you this morning. After the service, I'll be standing out here at the black table. Come and find me. Noah was a notorious sinner who was declared to be a notorious saint by grace through faith. This is great news for all of us Noahs. Let's pray.